0: Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the May 1st, 2022 session, focusing on Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, worthiness. I'm David Cassidy.
1: I'm Nikki Hardiman.
0: I'm David Adams.
1: And I'm Crystal Shepard.
0: Welcome back, Crystal. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't haven't had the opportunity to be with Crystal lately, and uh, it's so good to, well, I can see her face because we're also on Zoom, but dear (laughs) listeners, she's back. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I am
0: I hope you've been doing well
1: I have, thank you
0: We also have David Adams back with us Welcome back, David Thank you Woo-hoo! It's uh, We're recording this during Holy Week which I will just tell you is a very <laughs> difficult week in which to schedule a recording
2: We need to look ahead next year Oh my gosh, yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> So we we are without Bert and Daniel, uh, whose pastoral duties uh, have them rather buried this week. So um, (laughs) hopefully they will get some rest after Holy Week, and we will welcome them back when they're able to return. But anyway, uh, we've only been in the book of Revelation in Faith Element a few times, right, Nikki?
2: Right, like— Maybe only one other time.
0: That's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, it's it's, it's not regular. It's not a very so, common thing. <laughs> um, so before we jump into this passage today, I, I'm curious: what is something that you had to qualify for? That you had to, you know, do something to to be worthy of whatever it was you were attempting.
1: I have a few things. So in high school, I lettered in speech and drama. So I had to qualify for okay. that. So I did. I had a letterman's jacket and everything for speech and drama, not for a sport. <laughs> um, so I had to, to qualify for that. And then also just in my career, I've had to do lots and lots of hours of uh, supervision and counseling practice and then set for the counseling exam. So there was a lot of qualification going on there.
0: Absolutely. And you did it.
1: I did, that's and a, I'm glad it's over.
2: That's so much. <laughs> it is a lot. Crystal, you reminded me. In high school, I also lettered. I lettered in cheerleading and in band. Okay. Um, and so, um, and those were two different jackets. So, <laughs> like, they, it was weird. Um, so, so I had to do that. Um, so, yeah, most of the things that I have done in life haven't required a lot of qualification. So, but that's what I've done.
3: Oh, wow. Well, I've qualified for some academic things over the years. (laughs) I vaguely remember them, but I do remember growing up, I had to qualify all the time because I was in Boy Scouts. And to go to the next level up, you got to qualify by earning all these merit badges Mm -hmm. and skill awards and all that kind of stuff. And I got almost the eagle, (laughs) but they didn't offer the environmental sciences merit badge around here at the time. (laughs) And so I couldn't qualify to get there.
2: Can you go back and get it now?
3: probably but they think it's look pretty
0: goofy in those shorts.
2: <laughs> I might pay money to see that. That's
0: funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I David, that's really interesting because I made it almost to Eagle as well. I was what is it life? Is that yeah, the one? Life. Yeah. So I same thing, but for a different reason. Although I I think I would like to try the shorts again, but mine would need to be larger around in the waist. But <laughs> So I am remarkably unqualified for most things. Um, the The first thing I'm I'm just going to be straight. The first thing that popped in my head when I heard this question was, you know, growing up, I, I've always been less tall than other people, and. And so, going to amusement parks was really <laughs> annoying because they had these ridiculous signs right before you get on this cool ride that said you have to be this tall to get on it.
2: Oh, that's, that's so, <laughs> oh so sad.
0: You, know, you and and they would they would catch me if I got on my tiptoes. So, we oh. <laughs> had a life achievement coming up here. I, I, <laughs> So I still have a little PTSD when I, you know, go to theme parks, but it's okay. I'll, I'll, so I'm did fine. you just
2: qualify last year? Yes.
0: <laughs> I have so many rides to do. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, it is interesting the things in life that we get to qualify for, right? Like driver's licenses, oddly some things we don't qualify for, right? Like being a parent or, right? yeah,
2: you have to have um, a license to fish or hunt or get yeah. a gun.
0: Well, sometimes, but yeah.
2: But, but you don't have to for children mm-hmm. yeah. to have children. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So who, who knows? I, I don't make up the rules. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Crystal is with us today and is going to help us get started in this one. So uh, Crystal, we're all yours.
1: All right. I bet many of you didn't know that long before the Left Behind series, there were many teenagers combing through the Book of Revelation in the hopes of predicting when the end would come, even though our beloved Bible says no one knows the day or time. I don't know if it was because we grew up in the shadow of nuclear holocaust during the Cold War, or if the move to the digital age imprinted the idea that machines couldn't be trusted a la Terminator. All I know is that my friends and I sat for hours in youth group and on the bus to church camp, scouring revelation like some kind of theological Indiana Jones. Dan Brown's sluice had nothing on us. Images of the beast and its mark caused us to inspect whether the consumerism and convenient credit card purchases were a sign of the end times. We looked at which teen pop idol or rock band would rise up to be the whore of Babylon. I mean, who remembers what people thought ACDC meant? All of it was rooted in this idea that we lived in an evil world full of sinful people that needed Jesus to cross the chasm by laying down his life on the cross. I don't know if any of us stopped to ask who Jesus really was or what he stood for or what was the nature of God. All we saw was a battle between good and evil, and that if we studied enough, we would be able to know when it was coming and hope we were good enough to be on the right side. It wasn't until I was older that I took a closer look at Revelation. In seminary, we learned about John's exile to Patmos, where he had this fantastical vision that resulted in Revelation. We learned that the text was not a predictor of Jesus' second coming, but actually a commentary of Roman occupation. Wait, what? I, I felt duped and frustrated that I'd spent all those hours in a useless pursuit. But what I found out is it wasn't all in vain, because what you begin to see when you read Revelation is indeed a beautiful vision that is filled with guidance and hope, and at the center, we find Jesus. In today's passage, John sets up an introduction of Jesus as the Lamb. The text can't be taken in isolation from what comes before and what comes after. In the preceding chapter, there is worship of God. Once we come to chapter 5, John sees a scroll with seven seals. He is in heaven and the seals must be broken for what is to come, i.e. God's defeat of evil and a new heaven and a new earth. When John finds out that no one is worthy to break the seals. He weeps. An elder tells him that there is only one who is worthy, and that is the lion of Judah. But when John sees this lion, he is in fact like a slaughtered lamb. I love the jarring imagery that is yet again congruent with what we have learned about Jesus. He is never what we expect him to be, but he is exactly what we need. The lamb then goes to the throne and everyone worships him. All of heaven breaks forth in song singing, worthy is the lamb. It is important to note that worthy here is a political term in the Greek. It's akin to us singing hail to the chief. It is a way that John is saying that Jesus is the one who is worthy of praise and honor, not Caesar. It is also worth mentioning the lamb is used by John to remind us always of Jesus's sacrifice and his power that comes only through pain and passing through the darkness of death before we can have the promise of life and resurrection. The worship of God and the lamb reaches a crescendo here with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them joining in the song. It is an acknowledgement that in the end Jesus overcomes death, and love wins. Israel Kamuzandu says, In the deep valley of pain and struggle, Revelation calls upon its readers and interpreters to sing a new song, a song that transcends the present pain and reaches into the divine future. The song of a worshiping congregation overturns the present reality of pain and transforms that reality into a prophetic reality where God is in control. Worship penetrates the present darkness and transforms it into a world where God's vision is realized. I wonder if this looks like the Christmas truce of 1914, where soldiers on both sides of the war crawled out of the trenches for one day to spend time together. Bullets ceased, and for a moment there was peace. They exchanged prisoners, buried the dead, sat around campfires, and sang carols. I can hear the echoes of "O oh, come all ye faithful," or maybe they ventured to sing songs like, "What wondrous Love is this," which I hear echoed in Revelation 5. "To God and to the Lamb who is the great I am. While millions join the theme, I will sing. I will sing while millions join the theme. I will sing. When I read Revelation now, I'm convinced it's not some magnifying glass to help us hone in on the apocalypse, outrunning the boulder of time and defeating some extraterrestrial beast straight from the hell mouth, bent on destroying earth and torturing its inhabitants. Rather, it shows us how to live life in the midst of all the Caesars of this present day. It teaches us how to roar like a lion when necessary and live like the lamb, being willing to sacrifice our ego our pride, and ourselves for the love of God and one another. As the elders say in verse 14, Amen, may it be so.
2: You get me every time. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing Uh, good till the Christmas of 1914.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
0: Did you know there's an opera about that night? No. Yep. Really? It was performed hmm. at the University of Kentucky Opera, well, right before the pandemic, I guess, maybe 2019 or whatever. I think it's called Silent Night. Anyway, it's got an innocuous title, but it tells that story with music, and it's, it's really rough. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
3: I, you had one line that I, I can't quite recite what you said, but the gist of it was that it's through worship that God's work becomes real. Mm -hmm. You know that we really make it the world that God wants it to be. And and I just didn't take that to this particular passage until you talked about that. It was very interesting to think about that. We we tend to make worship more of this big display or something that we do. It's almost like a show to some people. Mm -hmm. And and to pull all that out from these, where everything that happens in the church happens for an hour on Sunday morning, to suddenly this idea of, no, we're about the business of making God's presence here something that's real. It's going to make a change, make a difference. That's a really different way to think about how that so-called hour on Sunday morning goes or or what you're really doing at the time.
1: And I wonder what it would look like if we, if we incorporated that perspective in our churches to look at worship, not as something we do, but as something that we are, that we are in, we are embodying worship, I guess, is the way I would say it. Um, And I think that it's also an like, looking at worship in this way, even though like with revelation, there's this, you know, all of creation is doing this, but there's like, there's this intimacy with God in, in the worship. Mm-hmm. There's this connection of all things in, in one moment in focusing all of that, they're, they're being, all of their beings toward God. And I think if we looked at that, like, then I think it wouldn't matter necessarily oh gosh I'm probably going to get raked over the coals for this but it's not going to matter like necessarily what song you're singing or what clothes you're wearing or whether you have the organ or whether you have the piano or whether it's a you know praise chord what that's not going to matter if all of our being was focused in one direction
2: yeah I think thinking about worship in this way it impacts the Sunday morning hour or whenever your hour of worship is Um, and, And it shifts that, but I think it also shifts the rest of the week because we live a worshipful life. We are living a life that helps bring about what it is that God wants for this world. And I really appreciated what you said, Crystal. You were talking about how Revelation teaches us how to live even with all of the caesars of the caesars mm-hmm. or whoever you said of the world mm-hmm. they will always be with us you know jesus said the poor will always be with you and i and i feel like we have the poor because we also have all the caesars mm-hmm. and they're always going to be there and revelation is written to people who are suffering and it that's what it is it's telling them how to live
3: and she raises the issue, well, the question I keep asking, which is, what if worship wasn't an act of ego?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Or what if it wasn't something that we focused on a soliloquy even, where someone stands up and does something? What if worship was something that's endemic, it it's underlies everything we do mm. as part of our faith? And so everything we do, we think of that, okay, we're part of this multitude talked about here that is participating in active worship when we do these things, whatever they happen to be. And it's not just confined to any time or place. It's time to be something bigger than that, which I think that's something that the Caesars of this earth really can't stomach because, you know, you pull the ego out of it when you do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. I think when you take the ego out of it, you take the power from the Caesars. Hmm.
3: Yeah, they're all ego. They're all built right. on this narcissism right. that you need to have. Right. And what's interesting here, too, is as you read this scripture, you're looking in here and it's not just the people who are doing the praising and glorifying and being present in worship. This is all creatures. And this is a lot bigger than just us. It's it's a lot bigger than saying, oh, because I'm human or a certain kind of human, even I should have power over things and, and I am a God in my own world. But no, every creature is supposed to be worshiping the one God. And that's what this is supposed to all be about. And life is supposed to work that way. And when it stops working that way, because somebody or some group of somebody's think that they should be in charge of things and have power over other things, you lose that sense of proper worship again. You lose sight of what worthiness really means.
2: Say more about that. Can you flesh that out a little more?
3: Yeah, I mean when we're when we're looking at people, I mean when we're talking about the seeds of this world, and these narcissistic folks that have to have control and power over things that comes through coercion and ownership and things of this nature. There, there's a saying that actually we use in talking even between podcasts where say certain people fall or fail upward. They don't have to be worthy of anything. They just get it given to them. They found it someplace. They took it from somebody because they could, not because they deserved it and not because they were supposed to have it, but because they had that power, they could take it. And we perceive worth uh, for people or leaders. We often perceive worth on that basis. Okay. You managed to take power. Therefore you're worthy of having it. You got people to fall for whatever it is you told them. So you're worthy of leading them. You earned mm-hmm. it because you did these things. But that doesn't speak to anything to the innate qualities that you bring to something. You know, right. or, or the fact that God's looking at this entire creation, including all the creatures, as in this passage. And there's a sense of worth that comes from this. Because if they don't have worth of their own, what difference does it make if they say worthy is the Lamb? They are not themselves worthy to even say that. So Mm. at some point, the the ability to say worthy is the lamb means you have acquired a worth of your own someplace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It kind of just makes me think that that worth comes from by virtue of being a created being. Mm -hmm. Just that God made you. So therefore you are worthy to say worthy is the lamb and i think that goes goes kind of counter it's counter to what i feel like i was taught growing up like i was taught you're not worthy you're you're this horrible person not not by my parents i'm just going to clarify my parents did not teach me that but just like in churches that's kind of what i heard that's the message that that i interpreted from the way things were said and so i think what you talk about of all of creation like i just think about the a tiny spider being worthy, even though I don't really care for spiders or my dog being worthy. You know, I mean, I, I know I'm probably going like on a tangent, but it, I don't know. It just, there's so much joy in that and hope for me just to think about it that way.
3: But it, it can be threatening to sound to be told that because we are all created by God, we all have worth and God's love extends to everyone equally with no exceptions and that you're expected to live into that if you're to be a true follower of God. It is tough for people to hear that sometimes, and it's even tougher for them to live it out.
2: Because if everybody has worth and everybody is worthy, then they can't claim to have more worth and more worthiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They lose what they use to garner power.
0: So I mean, we have to we have to talk about how this. Text intersects with the world we're living in right now.
2: Yeah. I I mean, it's
0: kind of the elephant in the room. Because I don't know about you, but I feel, one, totally befuzzled by this world that we live in and what it values and what it seems not to. And we watch scenes of destruction and scenes Mm -hmm. of power run amok uh, every day. And people jockeying for power. And for what use? To get more power, to get more wealth, to get. And it just feels like, I don't know, it feels like insanity so many times. And we're told over and over again, in one way or another, that if we just vote for the right political party, if we just elect the right leader, that all this is gonna be fixed or things are gonna be so much better. Now, I'm not gonna argue some leaders are better than other leaders. Sure. Some leaders have the public interest at heart more than other leaders. Absolutely. But in the end, for congregations like ours that have people in there that identify often as blue or red, wouldn't it be great if we could find the way to move to that next level, to hear this text and be called to put our hope in Christ, not in the powers of this world? Because that's what it feels like we're hearing in this text, that the Caesars of this world are not... Going to be the ones to save us. Just to say, all y'all are worthy, so stop fighting with each other.
3: You're not going to gain an advantage. You're all worthy. Don't let someone manipulate that to
0: get what they want from you. And worthiness is a community effort. I mean, I think that's one of the gifts the church can offer to people. Is that as communities, we often say, whether we say it with words or not, with our actions, with our acceptance or lack thereof. We say who is worthy, who is worthy to lead, who is worthy to be on committees to make decisions, to decide what happens with our money, who is worthy to really be a voice in this place, to be heard, even though that voice may be different. These are all community acts of worthiness that we can bless others with, if we will. Well, it, we do live in interesting times, and it can be disheartening. It can even cause us to question our faith. But it may also be a place where our faith leads us to some clarity, to really understand where our hope lies. And to live into that is a way to moving beyond this awful polarization that we all feel, and I think most of us really would love to be gone, to be done with, so that we could be people together again. People who are following Christ, that that transcends the other the other demands that the world makes upon us for allegiance. And that as we choose to follow Christ, that in itself shows our worth, right? That we are capable and able to follow this Christ who has already chosen us as worthy. What an interesting text. Thank you all for this good conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Subscribe to the Faith Element podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.